Uh, kia ora koutou katoa, welcome to this panel discussion, part of the New Zealand Food Safety Science and Research Centre Symposium here in Christchurch. It's called The Packaging Dilemma. Does it ensure safe and secure food or is it ecotoxic rubbish? The more moderate among you might guess that the answer to that polarised question might be somewhere in between. And I'm hoping that we might discern whereabouts on the great seesaw of costs and benefits packaging actually lies. We're here on an important day, of course. July the 1st, single-use plastic bags can no longer be provided to shoppers. We've been using about 750 million of them a year, apparently. Someone's obviously been using mine. Uh, amounting to only 0.01% of the total weight of landfill waste, but still. And, says the government, it's only a first step to the larger goal of a circular economy. The issue that's concentrating our minds on recycling has been China's refusal to take most recyclable waste. And this affects mostly low-volume household material, amounting to about a quarter of the material collected here for recycling, fibre, cardboard and paper, and mixed plastics. Meanwhile, we have the new Plastics Economy Initiative led by the Crown Research Institute, Scion, which aims to develop a roadmap for a circular plastics economy. A number of brands and companies have committed themselves to 100% reusable, recyclable or compostable plastic by 2025. But here's the thing. The Sustainable Business Network reported a few months ago that recycling will not solve the plastics problem. We have to eliminate unnecessary packaging, notwithstanding the government's announcement of $40 million to convert plastic waste into new products. So, what's unnecessary? Our panel is here to help. Mike Sammons is Sustainability Manager for Foodstuffs, which owns Foursquare, New World and Pack and Save. Sharon Humphreys, Executive Director of the Packaging Council of New Zealand. Um, our Professor Juliet Gerard is the Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor, a year into the job this very day. Congratulations to you. And Dr. Xiaomeng Wu is Associate Professor of Food Safety and Packaging at China Agricultural University in Beijing. He's been researching innovative packaging technology including a China-New Zealand collaboration on food packaging, and he's here on a scientific exchange program. Please welcome the panel. I've been struck by a point I made myself, <laughs> which is that we have to eliminate unnecessary packaging. Recycling will not solve the plastics problem. Do you agree or not? Let me start with you, Mike Sammons. Um, I think the first, the first thing to do is look at reduction. So if you don't need packaging, um, don't use it, basically. And the uh, plastic bags um, action is, uh, is a case in point there. That um, We've seen that um, consumers can adapt and have adapted very well to that. So, um, yeah, what was the figure? 750 million plastic yep. bags yep. Um, a year. So that's significant. So the first thing's around reduction. Um, and then the second thing is about um, if you do, um, if you're looking for packaging, aim for it to be renewable um, rather than non-renewable. 
And then if it can't be renewable, if you can't look at a fibre-based packaging and you have to use plastic, um, ensure that that plastic um, can, I, well, in an ideal world, it will be um, recyclable, but not just recyclable, but recycled back into what it actually came from. So, um, so you've got a circular solution. And the, the best, the, the ideal solution is to have that within New Zealand. How can it be recycled always back to where it came from? Are you saying that what is a bottle is recycled, plastic bottle recycled into yeah. another plastic bottle? That's right, yeah. So, so with some plastics you can do that to 100%. Hardly any though, surely. I um, mean, because it degrades. It, it doesn't de degrade to the point where you can't get a very high percentage of it back. And um, that's the ideal solution because if you're actually downcycling into something else, it's going to make it that much more difficult, basically, to actually recycle again. Sharon, what do you think? Is it possible to recycle our way out of this issue? No, it's not. I, I think that they, I think what we really need to be looking at is how do we optimise the system as opposed to maximising the system. I just want to quote back to you something that struck me that you said recently, the one-use plastic bag ban demonises the product but excuses those who litter. It's tokenism. <laughs> well, I have to say that by and large, the issue with the, the, the plastic bags is what we've done is we've said, well, we're going to ban them as opposed to actually saying, well, what is it about them that's the bad behaviour here? So where is it that we need to look at changing I suggest to you that what it is about them is that we don't need them. Well, that's, Which is that's, going to be the subject of yeah. this conversation. <laughs> and and that's, that's actually not the point. I mean, the, the, the reality... That is the point, right? But it isn't, because what's happened is that people have not, you, not taken the plastic supermarket bags because they're not available, so they've gone out and they've bought bin liners. And yeah, but there's no way that there's going to be so many bin liners bought that they're going to replace 70, 750 mm, million plastic bags. Well, that's not true if you actually look at it then on weights. So if you, if you, it might not be in terms of numbers, but then if you look at a plastic bin liner, which might be 15 times the weight of a lightweight plastic bag, then so you, you're on a 1 to 15 ratio before you've even started. Damn it, it's so complicated. <laughs> Dr. Zhaoman Wu, do you think we can recycle our way out of the situation? Uh, I certainly do not believe that. First, uh, if you look at our plastic production each year, there's a 40% growth each year. I think we are making more and more plastics, so eventually there are going to be more and more plastic waste in the environment. Simple math, right? And the other thing is you, you cut a, look at the recycle rate across the, across the globe. Plastic is about 9%. The ones we did the best... What are you saying? Only 9% of plastics is recycled right yes, now? Yes, yes. Shocking. 9%. And the other thing is, if you look at the material we recycle the most is the PET, which recycle about like 14%. I think around that ballpark is about 14%. That's the one we did the best. Why aren't we recycling more PET if it's the easiest to do? Uh, first one is about all those uh, plastic packaging materials, you hardly find them with the one single material. Usually seven or nine layers. Each layer has a different function to keep your food more fresh, uh, shelf, uh, shelf life longer. But it's really hard to separate them in the recycle uh, facility, so they just stop doing that. All right, so that's another important problem. Um, what do you think, Juliet? Can we even approximate dealing with the problem by recycling? No, because even if you could do all the sorting and get people to recycle, the chemistry is still not perfect. So it'll never be a circle, it'll be a downward spiral. So 
Mike was in fact wrong. You'll always have to downcycle. I think he's completely wrong. So I think recycling's part of the problem. Yeah, that's right. It's, it's certainly not. It, it isn't going to be the panacea. It's not the solution, recycling. The, the, as the first point I made was the first thing you've got to do is, is reduce. You've got to say, do I need this piece of packaging? What purpose is it serving? If it, all it's serving mm -hmm. to do is actually, and it is actually just to sell that product and doesn't have any true benefit to it, you've got to question whether it's worthwhile. Well, we'll, we'll talk about that because that's a very um, interesting and fine dividing line, as I think Sharon might agree. Is it, is it just there to sell the product or is it there to save the planet? You can't do both. But well, maybe you can. We're, well, we're, seeing, we're seeing both now. Yeah, In terms of, you know, so. the, the situation flips on its head a lot. So there's a number of um, supermarkets, certainly within Christchurch now, that are doing a, a promotion called Food in the Nude. So that's, um, that's nothing to do with what you have to do to buy the food you know it's it's the fact that you don't have any packaging within your produce department at all and that is selling more food than than a produce department with covered in plastic packaging wouldn't happen to be a foodstuffs I couldn't possibly comment no, <laughs> um Julia let me just come back to you uh, uh Dr Wu has made the point that plastic's very complicated it's very mixed up that makes the recycling of it very difficult it's made up of lots of different sorts of can we deal with that can we make plastic simpler so that we could recycle it that's the goal so some countries deal with it very well culturally like japan sorts into i think 11 different types of plastic um maybe that's not going to suit us as but kiddies. how do they i mean as, as dr we pointed out one bag could contain maybe six or seven different sorts of plastic yeah, so, so you can't sort that out the fewer materials we use, the better. So if we could get down to maybe three classes for most materials, that would be a big step forward. All right, and can we, can we do that? Sure, uh, it's gonna be problematic. So if you have to, you have to look at this problem uh, on two sides. First, you can dungate, you can actually reduce some of the materials we're adding in, like antioxidants or uh, like oxygen barriers. If you reduce those materials, you're gonna increase the gauge of the ones you, you re you already eat it, that means increase of plastic packaging. Well, yes, but if it's all the same sort of plastic, then we'd be able to recycle it, right? In principle, yes, but it's still going to be hard. Also, if you reduce the type of layers, maybe, you, would you suggest that we are threatening food safety by doing that? Well, there's no question that those layers are there for a purpose. So well, yeah, but what would the purpose starting, be? Well, it's then starting to, exactly, it's starting to pick apart what the purpose of those layers is. So if it's, whether it's a, a gas barrier layer, um, an oxygen scavenging layer or whatever it is that the layer is there for, it's there for a purpose. So you've got to then look and say, well, if we eliminate that, what will that do to the shelf life of the product? Now it might be that then it seriously compromises the shelf life of the product. If that is a product that's not a fast moving good, then that could then seriously contribute to food waste. So actually it probably isn't well worth doing, but there is no question that some things could quite conceivably be over-engineered. So if they are fast-moving, then do they need those layers? Because do we need that level of engineering in the packaging? So again, it's back down to looking at how do we optimise this system? Rather than just do blanket bans, and rather than say, this is good and that's bad, which is not particularly helpful, it's, well, what's its purpose? And if we actually start to compromise that purpose, then what what else, what are the unintended consequences there? And so it's it's actually thinking the system through. 
Juliet, you've just presented the Prime Minister with a report about plastics. Okay. Part of a report. The first Indra. part of yeah. a wide-ranging report. Because yeah. plastics is a thing, right? I mean, there are other wrapping and packaging that we'd be concerned about, particularly since China stopped taking most of them, as I said, fibre. But plastics is the most difficult one to deal with. What did you tell the Prime Minister? So it's a big project in four pieces. The one that the Prime Minister and Minister Sage wanted first was a look at what data we've got. So for any policy, we're going to need to be able to see if it works. So it was a, a big audit, essentially, of all the plastics coming into the country, into the landfill, out of the country, and how much do we know for each of the different categories of material. I just want to say something here. What's that? The National Resource and Recovery Project report done for the Minister of the Environment, um, which was released under the Official Information Act, like it was top secret for some reason. Um, the section on the viability of councils and recycling operators, totally redacted. For those listening, I'm showing the audience page after page of complete nothing. Now, I understand there are commercial sensitivities here, but that's ridiculous. I mean, how, if you're not going to make evident the kind of data in terms of the council's recycling and the viability of it, what are you nodding in agreement? I am. Good. <laughs> Carry on. So one of... <laughs> I'm just easily pleased, I know. Yeah. So one of the problems we had, and we talked to lots of the recyclers and the councils, was exactly that. So the data's there sometimes, but it's commercially sensitive because of the way all the procurement's done. So a recommendation would be to do the procurement in a way that insisted we had the data. Um, so that's the sort of thing we're looking at in the final report. Um, also, because it's all done in different ways and it's often commercially sensitive, it's hard to make it consistent across the country, which is a big problem if you're trying to make a national framework. Yeah, consistency across the country, and every council does it differently, right? If you're going to make it consistent across the country, though, what are you going to make consistent? You know, what level of recycling? Are you going to go down the Japan path where you have 11 different buckets? Segregation's got to be part of the solution because at the moment we're collecting what we refer to as co-mingled packaging. And all it does is create a further problem when you then have to try and separate it out. So if you go to one of these materials recycling facilities um, where they just where they all accept a lot of the commingled, um, you've either then got to uh, spend a vast quantity of money on very very complicated technical equipment to try and sort it out technically, or you've got to employ manual people to actually try and pick it apart. If you follow best practice that's happening... Is that not acceptable, excuse me, to, to employ people to do it? You know, instead of saying this is, this is going to be a problem, we're going to have to spend a lot of money, either employ a lot of people or get a lot of engineering to separate it apart, why not pick it up separated at the curbside? So you've got... If you look to Europe, for instance, if you look to um, Scandinavia or Germany... Um, you know, you have a system where you'll have three or five different separated waste streams, and then they're, they're clean commodities. They're not going to get all mixed up because a lot of the commodities coming out of the materials recycling plants at the moment are filthy and they're contaminated. Which is one reason why China isn't taking so much anymore. China still can import some, but uh, not every single piece of. But you're, you're getting glass in. You're getting glass in fibre. That's an issue to start with, you know, because there's broken glass. You're getting all the different different glasses all mixed up 
together. So the value's been lost there instead of keeping it clear green and brown. And then you're getting plastics that are, that are getting all of that contamination, fiber contamination, glass contamination in them as well. And that's because you're picking it up. You're, you know, it's, it's often the cheapest way to, for councils to, when they're looking to tender the work, you know, someone comes forward and says, yeah, we'll just pick it all up in one go, take it somewhere else and we'll sort it out there. But it's just perpetuating a problem. And if you look to best practice overseas, it's segregated collections. It doesn't all have to be segregated down to, you know, 10 different materials. You can have a collection where you could have um, your plastics with your metals because that's easy to separate out, you know, and one doesn't contaminate the other. All right. Do you, yeah. And do you think that it's possible, Juliet, to educate people to do this right? Well, it's not just education, it's different practices across different regional councils. And so in some well, places... Well, we're imagining we everybody's going to have the same system, right? So if we've all got the same system, yeah, then that should be easy. Is it possible that everybody will adopt the same system? Do you think that the will is there or are there other difficulties involved? Well, there's lots of difficulties around current contracts and procurement, but if you develop a national vision to sort it out, there's no reason why it shouldn't happen. And actually, Auckland's done this already because it went from lots of different councils to one big council. So we do have a really good example in New Zealand of going from lots of scattered collection systems to one big one. They might not have picked the one that's optimal <laughs> for the whole country because they've got glass in theirs. But nevertheless, there's a process that they went through that we could look at right. for the country. Somebody said something earlier that there's, there's um, a very well-known brand of soft drink that is not clear glass, is green glass. And that's obviously a branding exercise because it distinguishes itself from other clear glass and possibly better known brands. But it makes it almost impossible to recycle. Who was saying that? It was, it was plastic we were talking about, not plastic. glass. Yeah, yeah. Excuse me, green plastic. Yeah, so, so, so the value in a, in a material is um, if you can actually, the more things you can do with it once you've collected it. So if you're picking up a clear material, um, such as a Coke bottle is a, is a clear plastic, uh, you then have the option of either putting it back into a high-value use, such as another bottle, or you can add a colour to it and turn it into something else. But where you're picking up a coloured plastic, basically your uses are fairly limited. You can't turn it back into a clear thing again. You know. Because people want clear plastic. But why don't we persuade them that they don't want clear plastic and then it would be all right, wouldn't it? Everybody would have mud-coloured plastic and nobody would care. <laughs> Well, that's, that's the option then. And that's the behaviour change. Would it not be a marketing <laughs> opportunity? I mean, a display of one's environmental credentials. Why not? Well, that's what's happening. I mean, that, that is exactly what's happening with um, different... Um, overseas, we, we have got different examples where they're picking ocean plastics and they're repurposing it into um, janitorial-type products or personal care products, but they're actually making a feature out of the fact that they are using this plastic so it isn't going to be pristine in terms of its colour or clarity that you would get perhaps from a virgin polymer. So if you, if you had two bottles of water, Kim, and one was in a what looked like a dirty plastic and yeah. one was in a clear plastic... I'd never drink water out of a plastic bottle. Good for you. Never. <laughs> <laughs> but I think you get my point. I do. But it but has that's... worked for the shampoo in Europe. So they've got beach plastic shampoo and it's become a marketing feature. So Google beach plastic shampoo and see if it'll catch on. But you're not yeah. drinking it, are you? You've, you know, you're putting it in your hair and that's the difference. And people who associate Coke you drink with wine a out of a brown bottle. Ah, that's a very good point. <laughs> you do. You drink wine out of brown and green bottles. You know, why not? 
Why has it got a, got a different kind of impression with the consumer, I wonder? I don't know, you don't tend to swig wine from the bottle, though, do you? Or do you? I don't I know. Do. <laughs> Sharon, do you think we're at some kind of tipping point then where, where what people previously chose their products for has now changed? They will start choosing their products for their environmental credentials. I think that there is a tipping point that's been reached in terms of awareness. I think there is far more in terms of education out there and opportunities to research. And I think we do find more people are looking at this. But does that always translate into buying behaviour? I'm, I, I, I'm not so sure that the two work, go hand in hand at this moment in time. I, I think that there's a great deal of, of good intention and, and the awareness piece is clearly there, but in terms of whether or not people are prepared to pay premium for it, well, I don't know. That, that, that isn't what necessarily translates through into buying behaviour. So it's, it's back down to, well, how do we make it so that it is affordable? How do we make it so it is on par with other products so that certainly takes the cost side of it out i i think there's a i think there is a tipping point out there but i'm not so sure it's a tsunami at this moment is in it, time is it possible to make it affordable i mean i'm again i'm quoting the national resource recovery project report and it says recovery of recyclable materials is and always has been at a net cost and the difficulty of funding, finding markets is likely to increase that cost. It's not going to get any easier. It's a complex picture because in terms of the affordability, there's an awful lot that plays into that. And certainly the recovery side of things is one. So if you're looking at a recovery system where everything is very mingled up and everything, then the costs of actually looking at how we can separate that are costs that get added in. So, so again, what do we look at in terms of the separation? So if we can actually separate it at source, is that actually a cheaper recovery model? And then we can start and look, well, if then we're putting in recycled content into this, how do we bring the cost of that recycled content down? Is, are you saying that if we can get everybody doing the right thing in the household, then it will be affordable? It will be economically sensible? I think that's one issue. I'm not saying it's the issue. I think that's um, a really it's a good point you raise because everyone's, everyone's got a responsibility in this, in the whole supply chain, from the people who are, who are producing the packaging to the, to the people who are selling it to the people who are using it as well. And um, you can't expect one person or one link in the chain to sort all this out. It's every, it's every link in the chain has a responsibility and, and I think that the, you could link that with the points that um, Sharon made with, with regards to raising awareness, that I think, um, that I think people are a lot more likely to actually um, to clean and to separate their product now than they ever would have been 10 years ago. Well, of course. But, I mean, you still get people... You, yesterday, you still got people wandering out of the supermarket with plastic bags. I mean, you're always going to have the people who actually don't quite get it. Right. 
So in that sense, and in a population the size of New Zealand, is it ever going to be anything other than necessarily subsidised? Well, we haven't done all the maths yet, but um, I what guess do you think? we'll have to minimise the cost. And there's also the time That's frame. subsidy, right? We may have to. Cost? Yeah, we may have to, but we, I mean, we literally haven't done those maths yet. And we need to make sure we don't make decisions now that gives us a short-term solution that preclude longer-term solutions. So it may be in 20 years we've got a whole new material that, that solves this problem for us, right. and we need to take steps towards that. All right. But we can still make decisions now that don't rule out, you're talking about bioplastics down the track. Yes. What, how, how is making sure we recycle everything at as low a cost as we possibly can now with subsidies if we need it. How is that affecting our adoption of bioplastics down the track? Well, we're not ready for those yet. So what we need to do is make sure we've got the right infrastructure to maximise recycling. And yes, we have to stop people using it. And we need to make sure that the facilities we put in place, if these new materials appear and are useful, viable, cost-effective, that we haven't created a system that they wouldn't take. That'll be the hard part. All right. Mike, if, if product suppliers do not ensure, as the plastic packaging declaration requires, that their packaging is recyclable, reusable, or compostable by 2025, will foodstuffs refuse to stock those products? So that, that's, um, that's uh, the de plastic packaging declaration. Yes. So that's something that's been organised by the Ministry for the Environment. Yes. And the different companies have signed up. Have you not signed that. up to it? Yeah, Foodstuffs is right. one of those so companies. Can, that do you want me to repeat to the question? Yeah, yeah. So, so okay. foodstuffs, foodstuffs have a certain amount of control in terms of what they do. So they package... Uh, you well, know, you really have like a certain amount of control. Yeah, Foodstuffs yeah. says, we'll take that product, but we won't take that one. Presumably that's what you say every so day, we're, isn't we're it? There to serve, we're customer-driven. We're there to serve customer demand. And if customers still want to buy a product, it's not for foodstuffs to say, I'm sorry, but we know better you're not buying it anymore. So, so what but we hang are, on. But what we are doing... But let, excuse let, me for a moment. <laughs> if the plastic packaging declaration requires yeah. that the packaging is recyclable, reusable or compostable by 2025, hmm. your small print says... Only if the consumer wants that. No, no. So what we're saying, where we have control over it, so where it's our, our, our own brand product, so it's our PAMs and our value, you know, that's what we're working towards. That's our target to do it. Where it's the packaging we use in store, such as the meat trays, um, we'll make sure, yeah, we're actually going to hit that target. So we do, we've got a huge programme actually working towards that at the moment. But where it's the likes of, I don't know, Fonterra Brands or whether it's Heinz Watts, one of those other companies, their relationship in signing that declaration is with the Ministry for the Environment. So they've, they've made a statement that that's what they're going to do. So I don't think it's beholden upon foodstuffs to actually hold them to it. I, I don't know. I thought I understood you earlier to say that everybody had to do their bit all the way down the chain. And they do. But suddenly you just, you know, abdicated responsibility. That's their bit. That's what I'm saying. That is their bit to do. It's not for foodstuffs to do it for them. No, but you could, you're not doing it for them. You're simply saying, are you reusable, recyclable, compostable? No, not yet. Oh, well. Come back later. No, so what we're, we're doing a lot more than that. So we're actually taking out what, we're, what the commitment is and, and the research that we're doing and some of the innovations that we're introducing. And we're saying, have you thought about doing this? Because this is what we're doing in this area. We're happy to share that with you. How much pressure is there in China for this kind of thing? How much 
I mean, you've seen what we're doing here in New Zealand. You know, the, the pressure on the government banned the plastic bike. Sharon says that it's tokenism, but nevertheless, it's important tokenism. What's, <laughs> what's happening in China? Are you banning plastic bags? Uh, not in the state level, but at a province level. So uh, in, uh, there's a province called Hainan, which is an island in the South China Sea. The island, uh, and it is also a province. Uh, Hainan province uh, released a ban of single-use plastic. And uh, there's another uh, province there uh, in the mainland China that also said oh, we are banning the single-use plastic. So we see the movement, but it's not a state. What is that, like 0.01% of the Chinese population? Um, well, this is a... This is not a, it's not a lot. <laughs> Definitely not a heavily populated area. Uh, we, our main focus here right now is towards recycling and uh, garbage classification. That's the Chinese goal because we said uh, we're going to uh, establish inf infrastructure for all the major cities to have the garbage classification. They have volunteers at the garbage disposal site to oversee your behavior. Really? Yes. So you have to dispose your garbage according to their category. All right. Let's talk about bioplastics. Um, you mentioned this earlier, Juliet. What are they? Why are they called plastics at all? Oh, it's really confusing. So people muddle up plastics that can biodegrade, that can come from any source, with plastics that are made of biological materials. Um, so the Scion program is all about making sustainable plastics from any sort of biological materials, but wood would be a focus at Scion. Sustainable in the sense that they, they don't come from fossil fuels and also in the sense that they can biodegrade. So ideally they'd be plant-based in some way and also would biodegrade. Yeah. But they are effectively still plastics? Yeah, I mean, it's just how you define plastics. But yes. Well, how do you define plastics? I would include it, yeah. All right, because of the linkage of its molecules. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, so very similar structures, so yeah. So where are we on the development of bioplastics? Well, there's some really promising materials, and you'll already see some around. So some of the coffee cup lids would be made of bioplastics. How do we know the ones that are and the ones that aren't? It's hard to know, and even if you do know, it doesn't really matter at the moment, because it's almost impossible to recycle them. Well, so, yeah. so what's the point? Well, I guess what we need to do is start making sure we can manufacture at scale and getting things out there and educating people saying, please put that lid back in that particular pot in the shop. Don't put it in your regular recycling. So it's all about public education and making sure that people who are trying to write, do the right thing can do the right thing. So are you saying that if, if we have enough people using bioplastic coffee lids, then we will be able to recycle them because there'll be a sufficient mass of them? or will have figured out a way to do it. Yeah, and that's one of the things we're looking at. So as you were saying earlier, it's a hugely complicated problem, but finding a way to, on an industrial, scalable way, recycle those materials or compost those materials is, is going to be one of the pieces of the puzzle that helps. All right. And, and why is it so hard to find a way to compost those materials if they're bioplastic? Um, they're not made of quite the same materials as they once were. So they're not made of the plants that you can put in your regular compost heap. So you're going to need special types of composter, tend to call them industrial composters. There are a few around, but not enough to do the whole country. I think that the whole suggestion that things are degradable is a thing called oxy-degradable and blah, blah, blah. And people are confused, right? I think you told a story a little earlier in the green room, Mike, about how hard it was for you to degrade a bag. Oh, well, that, that was, yeah, 
we've been approached by a supplier who said, um, you know, we've got this great bag that um, is um, will compost down within no time at all. And, and I, it, was, it was some time ago, and um, we just went through a few basic exercises of, you know, slowly cooking it, putting boiling water on it every day, agitating it, putting it on the windowsill, and six weeks later, um, when they came in, we filled it up with water and it didn't have a single leak in it, So um, which surprised them. Um, so, so yeah, and I think that, that what that does, it tells us that we, we should um, look to certifications, basically, certain standards, you know. So products, if somebody says it's compostable, it's home compostable, or it's, it's um, commercially compostable, it has to have been tested to that standard to give you confidence that if you're going to put it into your home compost, it's going to be gone within a year. Yeah. Um, Sharon, you've said that the biggest challenge is to design systems which meet expectations but still prevent product waste, don't compromise health and hygiene, and don't put cost pressures on the most vulnerable in our society. That's a lot of qualifications, isn't it? The whole reason why we have such a proliferation of plastic packaging is because it's cheap and it's really, really good at its job. Depends, Sharon, surely how you measure the costs. Well, that becomes then a much bigger question, doesn't it? Well, no. And, well, well, it does because it's, it's then a matter of, well, actually, how do you measure the... how? How do you meet the expectations of what society is wanting in terms of transitioning into goods that, particularly plastic, so we don't have the plastic pollution problems? But how do you do that in a way that actually doesn't drive everybody that's currently in this system out of business, which is frankly not a whole lot of help to anybody but how do you also do it in a way that means that you're not putting up the cost of goods because the reality is that packaging people don't buy packaging they buy products right and so so when you say cost pressures you're not talking about the cost of society or the cost to the globe you're just talking about the cost to the people who buy the stuff you have to balance both that's what I'm saying. But there's, there has nothing, to be a but there's nothing there. in that statement that talks about environment. Well, that's because it's very... Once you start to go down that track, you're starting to get into such complex areas. How do you then distill that down into what are often very media sound bites? Do you want to insert environmental care into that statement I just read out? The biggest challenge is to design systems which meet expectations but still prevent product waste, don't compromise health and hygiene, don't put cost pressures on the most vulnerable in our society. Well, it's already there. Expectations. expectations. All right. So what are the expectations that you would like a system to meet? I would like a system that actually meets what we are meeting today, which is food safety, it's affordable. Products are get to wherever they need to be in the world and they get there safely, they get there undamaged. And I would like to do this in a way that actually is minimising the impact on the environment because there is always some impact. There's always some impact somewhere. So it's a matter of how do we, and it's back down to my, my comment about how do we optimise the system. Because all of, the, all of the goods that we all buy 
are all part and parcel of a system. Packaging exists in a big ecosystem. So it's not about, and I think we've already said, it's not about just looking at how do we target one particular part of that system. We actually have to look at the system as a whole. You've also said we need to engage society to address consumption. Yes. Do you mean quantity of consumption? I mean the whole, the, well, yes, quantity. Quality of consumption, quantity of consumption, how we're consuming. So, so it's again, it's a, it's a big, big social question. It's a big social behavioural picture that's looking at, well, yes, do we actually, when we purchase something, do we, what are the credentials that we're looking at? What's important to us? And how do we actually then project that in terms of our consumption habits? So it's, it's really a matter of actually thinking about how we consume. Um, Juliet, have you got any suggestion, do you think, either now or in the future, to the government to affect consumption patterns in that way? incentives for example the very last part of the report at the end of the year is going to be led by the psychologists who are interested in how to change behavior so they use examples like sun hats so 20 years ago kids didn't wear sun hats at school but now they all do so how do we get people to be more mindful of packaging in the same way that that behavior changed much more complicated problem than sun hats but at least there's some tools out there to understand how you get that sort of cultural transformation so people bring their water bottle with them instead of buying a bottle what about the attitude that we've taken to tobacco and just tax the hell out of it? Yeah, so that we, we do the science advice, not the tax advice. <laughs> so what we'll do is... But that's certainly in the arena of psychological incentive, surely. It is. So what will come out at the end of our report is a summary of the evidence base and some steers on what might have worked overseas and some suggestions for constraints around um, New Zealand, for instance, population size. And then we give that to MFE, they've got the first bit already, and they get to design the policy tools to see the best way to change behaviour. What about China? I mean, China, of course, has a, a much heavier state hand than we do. If China wanted to change people's behaviour, it could do it quite quickly. Um, the example I gave about the garbage classification is kind of an example of that. Yeah, but what about consumption? Well, um, people are interested. So, for example, uh, right now, uh, in terms of uh, there's a bioplastic called uh, polylactic acid. PLA, which is kind of the most available uh, bioplastic there. And uh, China is the number one producer of those bioplastics. Uh, and uh, there's an incentive for the company to manufacture that. And Tell me a bit more about those. What sort of bioplastics are they? Uh, oh, the, the ones uh, readily available are uh, PLAs and uh, the PAH. They use uh, manufacture some films for agriculture uses. Right. Those are the big ones. And there's a bunch of starch-based uh, there's co certain companies in... Do in they last long enough to be the equivalent of plastic? In certain functions, they can be equivalent to certain plastic, but not to all the extent. There's not a bioplastic right now can say, OK, we can replace all the plastic. Even plastic cannot replace all the plastics. No. You need different ones yeah, for yeah. each function. Are we, are we using these bioplastics that are available in, in, in China here? Well, yeah, How bits and pieces. So those coffee lids would be similar material. So we will have imported it? 
Um, that's a good question. I'm not sure whether we make it here. No, we don't. So, so we, the, the challenge with China. it, is, as uh, Juliet mentioned, is that when you haven't got one single type of material, it's that, that creates a problem for, for recycling. Because if you start getting PLA um, going into PET, yeah, yeah. that's regarded as a contaminant. So, um, so if you could actually mandate that everything, every coffee lid in New Zealand was going to be PLA, well, great, yeah. But unfortunately, you can't. And the other, the other, um, everything comes with a cost. Unfortunately, there's no silver bullet. So the vast majority, the, the biggest producer of PLA in the world is America. It's in terms of the um, the corn it produces. Now, the vast majority of American corn is genetically modified corn. So do you want to actually introduce genetically modified packaging, essentially, into New Zealand? And these are current state answers, right? So you can imagine a future state, which is not so far away, where we made our own PLA and we had the way of disposing of it, but we need to put that on the map. Right. If we're making PLA, like we do right now, is from actually from, because PLA is made from sugar. You ferment it into lactic acid and you make PLA, make polymer out of it. But we use agricultural products. So I think we need to steer that to using agricultural waste other than agricultural product because... Using up good land. Yes. Um, not because food necessarily. Th those type of manufacturers actually change the landscape, change the people, how you grow products. You may like grow sugar cane to make sugar out of it. So I, I would like to say like do not take sugar from little kids and make it into plastic. Just use the waste. I don't know. <laughs> I think we should probably take sugar from the little kids. <laughs> Don't you think? <clears throat> um, Mike, do you think that becoming a signatory to the declaration, the plastics packaging declaration, should it be mandatory? Um, <laughs> I, th I think it's, it's funny because when, when I first saw that being touted, you know, and Foodstuffs was asked to sign it, I thought, yeah, what, 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 how significant is it going to be? You know, is it, is it just words again? You know, is anything going to happen? And it's, it's been a, it really has been um, very, very um, groundbreaking, I think, you know, because every presentation we start with that basically. By 2025, we've committed, committed you know, at the highest senior level, corporate level, to get to this point. So, well, so it's we've, a already, huge... we've already described that the point is somewhat ambiguous, but well, not, carry not, on. Not for what we have complete control over, it isn't. You know, yeah. We're going to say it's going to be reusable, you know, so it, it could even be selling someone Systema or Tupperware and letting them come into store and, you know, and use their own, bring your own. It could be compostable if it's a bioplastic that we're actually happy with or a fibre-based option. Or if it's going to be recyclable, you know, it has to be genuinely commercially recyclable as opposed to technically recyclable. So, so it's a really powerful, um, I think it's a really powerful um, piece of a, a declaration, you know, for, for companies. You're to saying it to. doesn't need to be mandatory? No, I think a responsible company will sign up to it and, they are, and if they're as good as they were, they'll deliver on it. And will they get pressure from consumers to do it? They will. I mean, that, that's what we're seeing. It's, it's, it is the millennials. It's the generation wise and, and uh, the, even the, the generation before that, you know, the kids who are at school. They're the ones who are changing things now. And, um, and if they carry those consumer preferences through to the point, you know, when they grow older and they're having kids, let's hope they do, um, you know, the, the world will be a different place because that's what will drive the brands to actually give them what they're asking for. Do you think um, if, if you want to 
engage society then, what would you do first? Let me ask you, Juliet. What would you do which would be most effective in engaging people into reducing plastic use? There's some really great community initiatives that people have started to tell us about, say um, the Sustainable Coastlines Initiative, which is a citizen science project where they've got people going out and actually collecting data. So how much plastic is there? What type is it? What could you recycle? What can't you recycle? What could you change to fix it? Um, I think there's one in Palmerston North and there's another one in Raglan. So they're popping up. So community-led initiatives, led by schools, led by people doing citizen science to really get people thinking about the data and how to collect it and how to change it. That's one way. All right. What would you do? First, I think, is uh, public education. We believe in the three R principle, reduce, reuse, recycle. We want to reduce unnecessary packaging. I gave you the example earlier today. They put a peeled-off tangerine in a plastic Tupperware. So, which is totally unnecessary. But it was in America, right? Yeah. Okay. Yep. <laughs> it's, uh, it's, it's ridiculous. And so those type of unnecessary uh, packaging has to go. Uh, for instance, like uh, I, I often, I, I carry my water bottle with me everywhere I went. And also I never use a plastic straw or any straw because I think that's just ridiculous. As a consumer, you have to advocate for that choice push your manufacturer, your food company to say, we will pay you probably premium dollar or we will recognize your brand if you go in that direction. So give the push um, towards the uh, food manufacturer. I think that's a, another key. Uh, uh, what do you think about that idea? Well, I, look, I think that we need to have balance in the conversation. I think when it comes to packaging, it's when there for a purpose. When you talk about balance, mm. at what point are we told there will be more plastic in the oceans than fish? 2050. 2050. But that's not a given. I mean, it's, it's no, that's, that's not a given that that's going to happen. That's a projection if we continue down the path that we already are doing. And I think it's clear that we're not continuing down that path. I think it's really very, very obvious that there are massive commitments being made out there to really look at what we're doing and how we're doing it and how we can change these systems. What massive commitments are you referring to? I think if you look at the global commitments that are being made, particularly by the fast-moving consumer goods, companies, the, the people that, that actually manufacture at scale, significant scale, when they're starting to say, we're looking at how we can do things differently, we're looking at making changes, the impact that they can make is actually incredibly substantial because they are global companies. So, so I, think, I think it's fair to say that there is a great deal happening in this space. But when I talk about balance, I, I, guess, I guess, and it's probably what, what, what's been said already, is it's, it's looking at how do, we, how do we make the consumer understand what balance looks like in the packaging space as well. And, and for, for, for a great example, because we can't possibly talk about packaging and not talk about the humble cucumber. And, and of course, that's, that's, the, that's always the poster boy that's, that's held up there as being completely unnecessary to, to pack. Up, to, that's right. 
And yet the reality is if you are going to buy a cucumber that you're going to put in your salad tonight, you should not ever be looking at that in a piece of plastic. But if you're going to buy that cucumber and you're going to stick it in your chilli bin and it's going to go in the back of the car and it's going to the batch and you might use it sometime in the next week maybe, then you want that cucumber to be wrapped. Because then when you actually take it out of your chilli bin in a week's time when it's sat in the back of the car and all the rest of it, you can still use it. Well, maybe those people just don't deserve cucumber. <laughs> <laughs> Mike, what would you do to make I'd, I'd, the biggest difference? I'd buy a cucumber with a thicker skin that didn't need plastic. <laughs> well, there you go. Yeah. No. You know, well, exactly. But then, so, okay, so maybe, actually, we'll have to start growing different types of cucumbers. It's, ev it's everyone's responsibility, as I, as I mentioned earlier. You know, it's a responsibility for all of us as consumers... To, to make sensible choices about what we're actually purchasing. And then if we are purchasing packaging, to make sure that you know, we actually present it in a way to actually, so it can actually be commercially recycled. It's a responsibility of councils you know, to actually look at putting segregated um, collection systems in place. And it's the responsibility of brands to sign that declaration to actually say, yeah, and to, and to and feel the responsibility to actually deliver on that. I topic. wasn't, thank, thank you. I mean, I wasn't being entirely facetious. I, yeah. if, if we are saying that in order to have a cucumber a week down the track at your batch, we need to wrap it in plastic, then just don't have the cucumber. If you want milk to last five, ten days past its best buy date and in order to have that milk you need to have an opaque bottle that has been more difficult to recycle than the clear plastic then don't have milk that you need to drink five ten days after your due date but that's the balanced conversation it's so, not so a balanced that's, conversation that's just... saying anything the consumer wants the consumer should have and that's how we've got into this mess. do you know what i mean it's there has to be something that people give up in order to save the planet. And I'm sorry, but they just can't have everything they want. I've just dropped all my paper now. But, they, so they, they, but they have given up. You know, they've given up plastic bags. And now, oh, and dear, how hard was yeah, that? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> how hard was it? Exactly. So it's about consumer change, isn't Honestly, it? Honestly, to listen to some people, you would have thought it was the end of the world, right? Giving up, we've got to go now. Let me thank our panel. Mike Sammons, the Sustainability Manager for Foodstuffs. Sharon Humphreys, Executive Director of the Packaging Council of New Zealand. Dr. Zhao Mengwu, Associate Professor of Food Safety and Packaging at China Agricultural University in Beijing. And Professor Juliette Girard, Prime Minister's Chief Science Advisor. Please, ladies and gentlemen, thank the panel. <laughs>